Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I have quite a few notices this week, so strap yourselves in. First of all, as those of you on the Facebook page will already know, I want to know who you're from Catherine Parr, but I think you'll have got enough of a flavour of her by now to make a judgement. I've been keen for a while to get more audience participation in the podcast, as I firmly believe it is as much your show as it is mine. In my interview with Elizabeth Norton, which I will be releasing soon, we both revealed who our favourite Queen of Henry was. I know who I said, and whom Elizabeth said, but I would love to know what you all think. To have your say, then go to the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and you'll find the post containing the link to the poll pinned to the top. Vote for your favourite, and then write down why in the comments. We've had some great comments so far, so be sure to read what everyone else has written and continue the conversation. Secondly, and rather more seriously, I need your help. Normally at this point I would thank all my latest patrons on Patreon and give my current patrons some grandiose name like Space Ninjas of Amazingness and ask you all to send some money my way. And of course, I would love you to do that, but just not this week. As keen listeners amongst you will have already gleamed, I am British. I know, shock reveal there. I'm sure all of you will have noticed in the news over the past few months that my country has been hit by a number of awful attacks by terrorist nutcases. From Manchester to my beloved home city of London, many people have died and lots, lots more have been injured, both physically and psychologically. So, I've decided to do something about it. On Sunday the 30th of July, I will be taking part in the London Surrey 46, a 46-mile cycling sportive around my home city and the frankly rather lame county of Surrey. I am raising money for the British Red Cross, and I would be so, so grateful if you'd lend me some support. If you're thinking of donating via Patreon this month, then I would urge you to send some money, anything really, to this instead. If this sounds good to you, then go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash James Bolton. That's www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash James, B-O-U-L-T-O-N. That's the U in there, don't forget that. I put the address in the description of this podcast as well, and it'll be on the Facebook page. Victims of terror need our support, and it's incumbent upon us to work towards a brighter future. Okay, serious stuff out of the way. All that's left is to thank my latest Patreon donators, Christina, Loretta, and Percy's owner. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 55, Catherine Parr, the wife of Moses. 
last week, we saw the kind of queen that Catherine Parr became after she married Henry VIII, one that fulfilled her role as a nurturer of heirs, even if she did not produce any herself, a trustworthy and capable operator who could keep the ship of state steady while Henry was away, a convivial hostess of the court who made sure that foreign guests were entertained, and even someone who could get stuck into diplomatic affairs when the time was opportune. All of this would mark out Catherine Parr to be an interesting and important Queen of England, but not someone who jumps out as being someone truly special. However, I've not talked about the area where Catherine really steps out of the shadows of her predecessors and shows herself to be one of England's most important consorts. I've mentioned probably about 10,000 times so far in this series that Catherine held reformist views. Far more so than Anne Boleyn, and especially Henry VIII, she was a true believer, a Protestant. This meant that she believed that everyone, prince or pauper, man or woman, should be able to read scripture in the vernacular, and that she believed in the notion of sola fide, or justification of faith alone. This isn't a theology podcast, I won't get into specifics, but broadly this means that it was only through faith that you achieved forgiveness of sins, while traditional Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox Church required further steps. Now if you think times were good to be a reformist at this time, then you'd be wrong. Henry VIII had broken with Rome, ransacked the monasteries, and occasionally allied with enemies of traditional Catholicism, but he still did not consider himself to be a reformer. He certainly wasn't a traditional Catholic either, but he considered himself to be at least something close to that. This was made clear with the passage of the Advancement for True Religion Act, which was passed in 1543. This act, the high point of the conservative reaction to Cromwell's reformist policies, allowed the reading of the Bible in English only to men of noble rank. These men could also read a smattering of other religious texts, such as the Lord's Prayer and Ave Maria, as well as some Chaucer and other secular works. But that was it. This was an all-out assault on the printing industry, which was seen as being a cancer on the moral fibre of the kingdom by conservatives. Despite the fact that this act had Henry's support, Catherine saw in Henry a chance to promote her own reformist ideas, and spread what was sometimes called the New Faith across England, as it had taken hold elsewhere in Northern Europe. After all, he'd already done so much damage to the fabric of the old faith, surely he could be further drawn over to her side. Henry, like so many other monarchs of the time, saw himself as the arbiter of religious doctrine within his realm. He, as a self-declared head of the Church of England, had the power to shape the theological future of the kingdom. Catherine sought to use her influence and that power to her advantage. She was a great follower of Erasmus and all his writings, but she was not a passive follower. She was a shaper in her own right. She is the first Queen of England to have a book published in her own name. She had already published a work called Psalms or Prayers anonymously, an English translation from Latin of a work by Bishop John Fisher, the great defender of Catherine of Aragon during the trial. In 1545, she published, in her own name, a book called Prayers Stirring the Mind Under Heavenly Meditations, known as Prayers and Meditations for short. This was not an original book as such, but a collection of texts, in English, intended to be used for personal devotion. It was 65 pages long, and includes some of her own work as well, and it is a wonderful window under her. Now, to publish it, she would have to have gotten Henry's permission, and the fact that it was given tells us a couple of things. First, is that Henry did respect his sixth wife greatly. He wasn't naturally given to letting his queens have too much free reign, unless he had that respect for them, 
Look at how he'd slapped down Jane Seymour whenever she had tried to influence him. Second, is that it is relatively uncontroversial theologically. This was no partisan text. It isn't at all dripping with reformist zeal. It did omit some aspects of traditional faith, but nothing that would have stopped even a fairly conservative worshipper from using it. And that was, to an extent, the point. She wanted everyone to be able to use this book. Indeed, it was still in use during the reign of Mary Tudor. A good number of fancy expensive copies were made, with gilt and leather bindings, but there were also far cheaper versions produced, and it ran to many editions. Over her early time as Queen, Catherine further developed her vision of faith with her contact with a number of highly influential fellow Protestants. Chief amongst these was Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Cramner owed his position largely to the largesse of Anne Boleyn, and he saw in Catherine a chance to further the spread of the new faith. He also, however, recognised the need to keep things secret, and so he and the Queen did not overtly signal their alliance. That said, they spoke daily, and shared a strong zeal for the need for worship in the vernacular, for the prosecution of faith to be done entirely in English. Her next book, though, is the one for which she is best known, The Lamentation of a Sinner. It was probably written in early 1546, and for reasons that I'll get into in a bit, it was not published until after Henry's death in 1547. This was a far more personal work than anything she had written previously. It is one of the very few original works published by an Englishwoman in the 16th century, and it was probably one of the most radical written by either sex. In no uncertain terms, it confirmed her conversion to Protestantism as part of a conversion narrative. She stresses the ignorance of her youth, the blindness that prevented her seeing God's truth. She talks about the importance of justification through faith, which I've talked about before, and how vital it was that everyone be able to read scriptures themselves as a pathway to salvation. She criticises the establishment of the old faith, saying, quote, Now I will speak, with great dolor and heaviness in my heart, of a sort of people which be in the world that be called professors of the gospel, and, by their words to declare and show, they be much affected to the same. Such gospelers are an offence and a slander to the word of God, and make the wicked to rejoice and laugh at them. She then goes further, denouncing them as, quote, foul gluttons, slanderers, backbiters, adulterers, fornicators, swearers, and blasphemers. She emphasises the importance of evangelism, of the importance of converting as many people as possible to the Protestant faith. Quote, it were all our parts and duties to procure and seek all the ways and means possible to have more knowledge of God's word set forth abroad in this world, and not allow ignorance and discommend knowledge of God's word, stopping the mouths of the unlearned with subtlety and crafty persuasions of philosophy and sophistry, whereof cometh no fruit but a great perturbation of the mind to the simple and ignorant, not knowing which way to turn them. She then goes on later to say in the book, quote, Neither life, honour, riches, neither whatsoever I possess here, which appertaineth unto mine own private commodity, be it never so dearly beloved of me, but most willingly and gladly I would leave it to win any man to Christ, of what degree or sort soever he were. She espouses a form of feminism, though such a term is completely anachronistic, I admit, at least where religion is concerned. She identifies Christ's qualities of innocence, meekness, and humbleness as espoused in Christian teaching with the virtues expected of a Christian woman. 
when combined with her belief that anyone could achieve salvation and connection with God without the need of a priest as an intermediary, then this placed women and men on the same spiritual footing. She holds no store for those who believed in the execution of heretics, stating that it was antithetical with Christian teaching. Those on the wrong path should be guided and persuaded to change course. As if this book was not radical enough for anyone in England to have written it at the time, much less a woman, and even more less a queen, she goes on to, essentially, attack the king, or at least the notion of modern kingship. Quote, The princes of the world never did fight without the strength of the world. Christ, contrarily, went to war even against all the strengths of the world. He would fight, as David did with Goliath, unarmed of all human wisdom and policy, and without all worldly power and strength. Nevertheless, he was fully replenished and armed with the whole armour of the Spirit, and in this one battle he overcame forever all his enemies. She is here, in effect, dismissing all wars engaged in by kings as being like children playing with toy swords in relation to the glory of God. They are petty, selfish, irrelevant. For Henry, a king who wanted nothing more than glory on the battlefield, this would have seemed like a personal attack. It's not at all surprising that Catherine hid the book from him. There is so much that is fascinating about Lamentation of a Sinner that I could genuinely devote an entire podcast episode to it. I really have only scratched the surface. But let's pull ourselves away for a moment and consider just how remarkable it is. This is a Queen of England, a woman, in a society that thought that members of her sex should be seen and not heard very much, espousing, essentially, revolution. These beliefs of hers were not just far more radical than that of the kings, they went beyond many other reformist thinkers, such as Erasmus. And this was not just a revelation of her theological philosophy, it was a call to arms, for she not only espoused the importance of evangelising the new faith, she also writes about how she believed that it could be brought about from the very top. Quote, Thanks be given unto the Lord, that hath now sent us such a godly and learned king, in these latter days to reign over us, that with the virtue and force of God's word hath taken away the veils and mists of errors, and brought us the knowledge of the truth by the light of God's word, which was so long hidden and kept under, that the people were nigh famished and hungered for lack of spiritual food. But our Moses, a most godly, wise governor and king, hath delivered us out of the captivity and bondage of Pharaoh. I mean by this Moses, King Henry VIII, my most sovereign, favourable lord and husband. And I mean by this Pharaoh, the Bishop of Rome, who hath been and is a greater persecutor of all true Christians than ever was Pharaoh, of the children of Israel." For he is a persecutor of the gospel and grace, a setter forth of all superstition and counterfeit holiness, bringing many souls to hell with his alchemy and counterfeit money, deceiving the poor souls under the pretense of holiness, but so much the greater shall be his damnation, because he deceiveth and robbeth under Christ's name. Wow, she really pulls no punches here with her criticism of the hierarchy of the old faith. But it is here, right here, that she makes her fundamental misjudgment. Because she saw in Henry's actions so far a man who was travelling down the same spiritual road as she. Catherine saw herself as having progressed much further down this path to righteousness, but she believed that the king would eventually catch up. 
What she had not yet realised is that Henry was quite happy where he was theologically. He was not the reformed man that Catherine had hoped he would be and believed he could become. And it would very nearly cost her everything. It's not entirely clear to what extent Henry knew about his wife's religious zeal. He certainly would have known that she was very interested in religion, and given that they were known to engage in theological discussion, he would have equally have been aware of the fact that her beliefs were a little more out there than his own. According to the Protestant historian John Fox, he of Fox's Book of Martyrs' future fame, quote, Henry was informed that Queen Catherine Parr, at that time his wife, was very much given to the reading and study of the Holy Scriptures, and that she, for that purpose, had retained diverse, well-learned and godly persons to instruct her thoroughly in the same, with whom, as at all times convenient, she used to have private conference touching spiritual matters, so also of ordinary, but especially in Lent, every day in the afternoon for the space of an hour. One of her said chaplains in a privy chamber made some collation to her, and to her ladies and gentlewomen of her privy chamber, or others that were disposed to hear, in which sermons they oft-times touched such abuses as in the church then were rife. As these things were not secretly done, so neither were their preachings unknown to the king, whereof at first, and for a great time, be seemed very well to like, which made her the more bold, being indeed become very zealous toward the gospel and the professors thereof, frankly to debate with the king, touching religion, and therein flatly to discover herself oftentimes wishing, exhorting, and persuading the king that as he had, to the glory of God and his eternal fame, begun a good and a godly work in banishing that monstrous idol of Rome, so he would thoroughly perfect and finish the same, cleansing and purging his Church of England clean from the dregs thereof, wherein as yet remained great superstition. And yet, she must have known the dangers. Henry's third way, which was neither fully Catholic nor really all that reformist, meant that people who shared Catherine's beliefs were in constant danger. Many were tried and convicted of heresy for espousing beliefs such as denying the miracle of transubstantiation. He cracked down on Protestant books too, and all of this emboldened the religious conservatives at court. Chief among these were two people we've met before, the Lord Chancellor, Thomas Riothsley, and the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardner. Riothsley was the man who led the delegation that had brought Anne of Cleves from Calais to England, and had been a key figure in the investigation into the misdemeanours of Catherine Howard. Gardner had been a member of the papal delegation sent to Rome to argue for Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. After that failed, he came back to England and became a leading opponent of Cromwell. He fell in with the Duke of Norfolk and became a key part of bringing down Cromwell, and then became a cheerleader for the marriage to Catherine Howard. He managed to distance himself when that all went down south, and then actually married Catherine Parr to Henry in 1543. Their goal, as it had been for a long time, was to roll the clock back to before the break with Rome, and return England to the papal bosom. Their strategy, that they hit upon here, was one of decapitation. Bring down the key leaders of the Reformation, and create a power vacuum at court, which they could occupy. This would then put them in prime position to dominate the court of the boy King Edward, and guide him towards the true faith. At least, that was the plan. They had already gone after Archbishop of Cramner a few times, but made a serious move in 1543 when they arrested him and tried to send him to the Tower. However, after approving of the arrest, 
Henry then gave his archbishop a ring, a symbol of his power and support, which forced them to back down. As Henry had known about the planned arrest before, it seems clear that this was a signal to Cramner that he needed to pipe down a little about his religious views. Having failed in their attempt to bring down the archbishop, the conservatives at court went after their next target, the queen. Henry and Catherine's marriage had been rock solid ever since they had Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tied the knot in 1543. He had trusted her with his children, his court, and even his kingdom so far, and seemed to be enjoying having a highly intelligent and educated wife again with whom he could debate. But danger was lurking. There were whispers at court that her rumoured healing skills were thanks to the use of witchcraft. Quote, They leap at me as it were so many dogs, Catherine wrote in frustration at such rumours. The companions of the wicked bark at me. They beset my hand and feet round about. Then the conservatives targeted her inner circle. Lord Thomas Howard and Sir Edward Warner, supporters of both the Queen and religious reform, were summoned before the Privy Council. Howard was asked straight up if he had seen heretical books in the Queen's chamber. He denied it, but it's not clear that anyone believed him. These were followed by a litany of supporters of the Queen, some in high places, others in low, who were questioned about their religious beliefs. The most famous of these was Anne Askew. She was a staunch and zealous Protestant lady from the Lincolnshire gentry, who had been thrown out of her house by her husband, and therefore came to London. Her sister was the steward to the Duke of Suffolk, who was the husband of one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, and her brother was a member of the king's household, giving her good access to the court. She was not shy at expressing her radical beliefs, which led her to be arrested. During her interrogation, she was asked by conservatives on the council to name fellow heretics in high places. She refused. They then asked her specifically if a number of specifically named ladies, including the ladies Suffolk, Hartford and Sussex were heretics. These were all women close to Catherine and were known to be reform-minded. Again, Askew denied it, even after being tortured on the rack, a remarkable feat. After failing to give her prosecutors what they wanted, they condemned her to be burnt at the stake. 
making her the only Englishwoman to be both tortured and burned at the Tower of London. The noose was very much tightening around Catherine, but still, there was not much the Conservatives at court could do while she had Henry's support. But Henry's health was failing, and its deterioration manifested itself in horrific pains that turned his mood black and his rages white-hot. In March 1546, he was confined to his bed for some time. Catherine would spend time by his bedside and would continue to debate with him about religious reform. Normally, he enjoyed such spiritual discussion, or at least tolerated it. Now, though, he began to get frustrated and started to show it. On one such occasion, Bishop Gardiner was in the room, and he immediately got together with Riothsley and began to plot. According to John Fox, they, quote, thought that if the iron were beaten whilst it was hot, and that the king's humour were holpen, such misliking might follow towards the queen, as might both overthrow her and all her endeavours, and only awaited some occasion to renew in the king's memory the former misliked argument. They began to stir the king's anger to the point that he exclaimed sarcastically, quote, A good hearing it is when women became such clerks, and a thing much to my comfort to come in mine old days to be taught by my wife. Gardner, who was present, then made his gambit by launching into a very clever attack on Catherine. He started with some classic slimy, smarmy stuff about how he didn't want to say all of this, but, you know, duty compelled him. Quote, Howbeit, for his part, he would not, nor durst he without good warrant from his majesty speak his knowledge in the Queen's case, although very apparent reasons made it for him, and such as his dutiful defection towards his majesty and the zeal and preservation of his estate would scarce give him leave to conceal, though the uttering thereof might, through her and her faction, be the utter destruction of him, and of such, indeed, did chiefly tend to the prince's safety, without his majesty would take upon him to be the protector, and, as it were, their buckler. Isn't he a right piece of work? Anyway, that out of the way, he could now get into the denunciation stuff. He stated that, quote, He, with others of his faithful counsellors, could, within short time, disclose treasons cloaked with his cloak of heresy, that his majesty should easily perceive how perilous a matter it is to cherish a serpent within his own bosom. Howbeit, he would not, for his part, willingly deal in the matter, both for reverent respect aforesaid, and also for fear lest the faction was grown already too great there, with the prince's safety, to discover the same. This little speech, combined with Henry's natural suspicious nature, and the pain racking his body, was enough to win Gardiner his support for the arresting of the Queen. The bishop then went away and began to make his plans. He didn't just intend to take out Catherine, he was aiming at the entire Parr clan, including her sister Anne. But then... Henry did something rather peculiar. He told his doctor, someone who was close to Catherine and therefore certain to blab, that he, quote, intended not any longer to be troubled with such a doctress as she was. The physician could not have failed to notice the implied threat to his friend's life. Then, somehow, the arrest warrant with all the charges against Catherine was mysteriously left somewhere where a member of the Queen's household could find them. Now... One might have expected Catherine to have been steeled for such a blow. She and her friends and attendants at court had been under suspicion for some time, and the king's mood was most certainly against anyone who differed from his party line on religion. 
but it seems that she had grown rather overconfident in her abilities to persuade the king to adopt her own position on religion, and believed herself to be immune from danger. When she was told, she was beside herself. Quote, The queen fell incontinent into a great melancholy and agony, bewailing and taking on in such sort as was lamentable to see, as certain of her ladies and gentlewomen being yet alive, who were then present about her can testify. Henry, apparently hearing the commotion, sent his doctor to see what was the matter, the same doctor whom he had told his plans to arrest the queen before. He went to her and gave her some sage advice. Quote, he could not but give her warning of that mischief that hanged over her head, exhorting her somewhat to frame and conform herself unto the king's mind, saying he'd not doubt but if she would so do, and show her humble submission unto him, she should find him gracious and favourable unto her. Catherine took this advice to heart. She removed any books that had been forbidden by the council that still remained in her quarters, and prepared herself to have the most important conversation of her life with the king. She felt her religious beliefs very strongly. This was no fright of fancy, but she had no intention of dying for her beliefs, of following Anne Askew to the stake, or her predecessors Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard to the block. The next night, she went to the king's chamber, resolved to submit to her husband. As someone who clearly felt strongly that the woman's position with her husband should be, if not one of equality, then at least something closer to it than was the norm, this must have been a pretty awful speech to have to make. Henry teed Catherine up by attempting to engage in one of their regular theological discussions. This was the big test. Would she go all in and stick to her guns and risk her life? Or would she bite the bullet and back down in front of both him and witnesses? This is what she said, according to John Fox. Quote, Your Majesty doth right well know, neither I myself am ignorant what great imperfection and weakness by our first creation is allotted unto us women, to be ordained and appointed as privy chamber and subject unto men as our head, from which head all our direction ought to proceed, and that as God made man to his own shape and likeness, whereby he, being endued with more special gifts of perfection, might rather be stirred to the contemplation of heavenly things, and to the earnest endeavour to obey his commandments. Even so, also made he woman of man, of whom and by whom she is to be governed, commanded, and directed." whose womanly weaknesses and natural imperfection ought to be tolerated, aided, and borne with all so that, by his wisdom, such things as be lacking in her ought to be supplied. Since, therefore, that God hath appointed such a natural difference between man and woman, and your majesty being so excellent in gifts and ornaments of wisdom, and I, a silly poor woman, so much inferior in all respects of nature unto you, how then cometh it now to pass that your majesty, in such diffuse causes of religion, will seem to require my judgment, which when I have uttered and said what I can, yet must I and will I refer my judgment in this, and in all other cases, to your majesty's wisdom, as my only anchor, supreme head, and governor here in earth, next under God, to lean unto. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. This is a perfect example of the concept of wifely submission, using biblical allegories to justify it. She makes a firm statement of both her weakness and the weakness of womanhood, to say that it would be ridiculous for Henry to seek her wisdom on matters of religion. 
He alone made those calls, not her. And she bases it firmly in theology. Henry, though, wanted more. And so said, quote, Not so, by St. Mary. You are become a doctor, Kate, to instruct us as we take it, and not to be instructed or directed by us. So here he appears to be pressing his wife, saying that she had indeed presumed to lecture on religion. She, according to him, had taken upon herself to be the one to make judgments and decisions on religion, and would not accept the positions of her husband or his counsel. Catherine then was forced to go further. Quote, If your majesty take it so, then hath your majesty very much mistaken me, who have ever been of the opinion to think it very unseemly and preposterous for the woman to take upon her the office of an instructor or teacher to her lord and husband, but rather to learn of her husband and be taught by him. And whereas I have, with your majesty's leave, heretofore been bold to hold talk with your majesty, wherein sometimes in opinions there hath seemed some difference, I have not done it so much to maintain opinion as I did it rather to minister talk, not only to the end your majesty might with less grief pass over this painful time of your infirmity, being attentive to our talk, and hoping that your majesty should reap some ease thereby, but also that I, hearing your majesty's learned discourse, might receive to myself some profit thereby, wherein, I assure your majesty, I have not missed any part of my desire in that behalf, always referring myself in all such matters unto your majesty, as by ordinance of nature it is convenient for me to do. Upon this final submission, Henry rose up, embraced her, and kissed her, and exclaimed that, quote, Perfect friends we are now again, as ever at any time heretofore. Now, of course, it's not entirely clear that this would have been exactly what happened, as John Fox was clearly not in the room when this all happened. However, this is likely not too far from the truth, and I quoted it all in full because it's such a strong example of the position of queens and wives in general at this period. They were not equals in their marriage. Any power, position, or influence that they attained had to come with the consent of their husband. Catherine Parr had forgotten just how precarious the position of queen was. She had done so well in every other aspect, but she had crossed the line over religion and almost paid the price. The fact that she did not has a lot to do with how Henry dealt with his courtiers at this time. He liked to play factions off against one another. He'd done the same with the arrest of Thomas Cramner that I mentioned earlier, agreeing to arrest him but then backtracking at the last minute. These actions against Catherine and Cramner served to give them both a warning and severe fright, but not condemn them to death as he had so many others. Perhaps he had learned his lesson with Cromwell. It's also important to note that he had agreed to see Catherine after he had apparently agreed to her arrest. In the cases of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, he had refused to see them after their arrest. If he had truly set his heart to have her executed, he would never have agreed to meet her. Now, this is not the end of it, because no one had told the Lord Chancellor that the King had forgiven the Queen. Henry and Catherine were sharing a romantic walk at Hampton Court Palace, whereupon Riothsley turned up with 40 guards to arrest her. Why he did not compute that the fact that she was walking with the king was a sign that maybe he should back off is anyone's guess. Clearly not the sharpest knife in the cutlery drawer was the Lord Chancellor. When he attempted to arrest Catherine, Henry turned on him, calling him, quote, Knave! Errant knave! Beast and fool! Understandably, Riothsley left pretty sharpish, his plan to bring down the queen in tatters. 
His gambit had failed. The Conservatives at court had played their hand and lost. They fell from favour for the rest of Henry's reign. Catherine had survived, but was thoroughly chastened. The strong, independent-minded way that she had conducted herself up until now had to be curtailed. To survive, she would have to become a far more ornamental queen than she had been up to this point. However, that said, it's worth saying this. At no point in all of this did she recant her beliefs. She spoke at great length that it was not her place to speak out about religious policy, that she hoped to learn from the king and be instructed as to his own beliefs and take those on board. But she did not recant. She had been tested by the king, and she had passed. But she remained, though far less openly, the first ever Protestant Queen of England. That's almost it for this week, but I realised that I haven't had an audio clip for quite some time. I only really put these in if I can easily find something relevant, and it works within the episode. I also have such a soft spot of Shakespeare that I tended to just put those in whenever I have the chance, and this is no exception. It has strongly been suggested that John Fox's account of Catherine's speech of submission to Henry VIII influenced the immortal bard when he was writing one of his most controversial plays, The Taming of the Shrew. If you're not familiar with it, the basic notion of the play is that Katharina you can already see why people have made the allegory, is a headstrong, assertive, and impossible woman who no woman could marry because she was so headstrong, assertive, and impossible. All the dudes want to marry her hotter younger sister, but their dad said that no one could marry the sister until someone married Katharina because he is so tired of her arguing with him. Remind you of anyone? So, one of the dudes, called Patricio, takes on the challenge of taming the shrew by getting her to submit to marriage. By the way, if this all sounds like the plot of 10 Things I Hate About You, then you'd be right, as it's based on this play. It all gets very complicated, but basically, we eventually end with the final scene, where Katharina is married to Patricio, and two recently married women are also there. Then Patricio and their husbands, all clearly pieces of crap, decide to have a competition for who had the most submissive wife. The other two wives refuse, but to everyone's shock, Katharina proceeds to drag them in both by the ear before making this extraordinary speech of submission. If you were listening carefully to Catherine Parr earlier, you may notice how very similar they are. This scene is from a 1967 adaptation of the play starring Elizabeth Taylor as Katharina. Come on, you're mocking! Nay, I will not! Fie, fie! Unknit that threatening, unkind brow! And dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frost do bite the meads. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee. And for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor, both by sea and land. To watch the night in storms, the day in cold while thou liest warm at home, secure and safe. He craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty the subject owes the prince. Even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when she is froward, peevish, 
sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will. What is she but a foul, contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? Come, rolling, unable worms. Come. My mind hath been as big as one of yours. My heart is great, my reason happy more to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws. Come, and place your hands below your husband's foot, in token of which duty, if he please. My hand is ready. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 